Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is uh, Cream Butler, uh, and it's a great pleasure uh, to welcome you here this evening for the fourth Chevening Gurukul public lecture. Uh, and I think there are essentially two main reasons why uh, I've got the honour tonight of introducing our speaker. Uh, the first is that uh, until very recently I was the Deputy High Commissioner in New Delhi uh, and worked very closely with the uh, Chevening programme. Uh, this included actually chairing um, over several years the selection panel uh, for uh, the Chevening Gurukul Scholars. And I have to say that it's a job, the Deputy High Commissioner's job, that has many highs and many lows, but this certainly was one of the, the big highs for me. It was an enormously enjoyable uh, process. Uh, the second factor is that I was lucky enough to spend six years in the LSE uh, many years ago, and uh, it's great to be back and see how the, uh, the architecture has improved in the, uh, in the intervening years. Uh, as a, a number of you probably also know, the Chevening Kurugul Leadership Programme uh, was created in 1997, uh, and it was created to celebrate uh, 50 years of post-independence cooperation between the UK and India. It's fully funded by the Foreign Office, and each year it gives between 12 and 16 scholarships to rising leaders from India to attend a program on leadership and globalization. Uh, and this year, uh, given the events um, which are due to take place uh, in uh, Copenhagen uh, in a few weeks' time. Uh, it's a really uh, critical time, I think, for people from many parts of the year to be in London and to get us a feeling of uh, many of the, the global issues that are shaping our world. The Chevening Gurukul uh, students spend three years, three months, I'm sorry, it could be three years, three months on a tailor-made course uh, and in fact, since its inception, it's being run in the LSE. Uh, and there is actually a tender underway to determine whether the LSE is going to continue running it. So I have to say, without prejudging that tender in any way, uh, that the, the way the LSE has run the course has been an enormously uh, important part of the program's appeal. Now this year, there are four women and nine men uh, who are in the 12th batch of the Chevening Gurukul program. And they started their studies here in late September, and I believe they're all in the audience tonight. Um, I don't know if they could all put up a hand so we could see where they are. Great, all in the front row, that's a good sign. Um, there are also in India around 110 alumni of the program uh, who have set up a foundation, the Chevening Gurukul Foundation. And I have to say, my experience in India was that this was one of the strongest features of the Chevening program. Um, it gives a very strong identity, uh, there's a lot of mutual support. And uh, also, I think it's helped to build the connection between those who've done the program and the UK. And I'm absolutely confident as in the years ahead that this is going to be a great asset uh, in developing further relationship between the UK and India. Now, um, we're extremely fortunate tonight uh, to have a speaker whose gifts as a communicator uh, are matched by his depth and breadth of knowledge of the subject that he's going to address tonight. Uh, Edward Luce uh, graduated in PPP, PPE in Oxford uh, and then took a postgraduate degree in journalism in the City University London. He joined the Financial Times in 1995 as a reporter uh, in the Philippines and in 1999 took a year off uh, to work in Washington as a speechwriter for Larry Summers. 
Now, I think that must generate, if nothing demonstrates intellectual stamina, I think that must be, be the thing that does. Uh, he then went to uh, New Delhi uh, to be the FT's uh, South Asia bureau chief. And uh, while in New Delhi, he wrote uh, what is now an extremely well-known book on India uh, titled, In Spite of the Gods, The Strange Rise of Modern India. Now, I went to India in, 19, in 2006, and uh, this book was just appearing as I arrived. And I remember talking to a number of my uh, diplomatic colleagues, and quite frankly, a number of them were thinking of packing up and leaving and going back home, because it wasn't clear what more you could say to the capitals after Edward has written his book. Uh, fortunately, events moved on, and uh, you know, there was more to say later on. But it is an extraordinarily uh, insightful book. And uh, what... Uh, Edward then did after uh, producing that book in India and being in India for three years was to move to uh, the FT Bureau in Washington. And therefore, uh, we're very fortunate tonight um, that he's kindly agreed to give us a lecture, uh, which is going to be titled The India, the USA, and Global Warming. And given where we are in the phase of uh, the run-up to Copenhagen, I think that's an extremely good title to choose. So ladies and gentlemen, Edward Luce. Thank you very much for that very kind introduction. Uh, it was, I didn't expect to know any of the Chaitjivian students. I was delighted to see an old friend, an old face, Manmendra Singh, sitting there in the very nicely tailored uh, Nehru suit uh, in the front row. Um, and very sorry to hear that you lost your seat in June. Manmendra was a member of parliament. I have to say, though, and you won't thank me for it, I was delighted that your party lost. Um, <laughs> Um, Crayon, that was a, a very kind introduction. Um, I'm going to talk about global warming, but I'm not going to get there immediately. Um, although I will start with a little anecdote, which you sitting in the front row will be very familiar with. A couple of weeks ago, in fact, ten days ago, Jarem Ramesh, who's India's Minister of the Environment and uh, probably the, the, the face of India in terms of climate change, um, sent a private letter to Manmohan Singh, the Prime Minister. And in that letter he said the relatively, to Western ears, unexceptional um, suggestion that India should consider aligning itself more with the G20, with the great powers of today, rather than the G77, um, and more importantly, that it should consider taking steps in its own national interest to mitigate uh, its carbon emissions, which mitigate is diplomatic code for setting a national emissions reduction target, which of course is not India's official position at all. That letter was leaked to the Times of India, and one of the Chavling scholars here is from the Times of India, so you'll be very familiar with it. Um, and in the subsequent uproar, not just from the communist left, not just from the BJP, but from members of Jaram's own Congress party and from members of the civil service in Delhi. The subsequent condemnation of what Jaram said, um, that he was selling India's economic development down the river, that he was a lackey of the West, etc., etc., um, it was unsurprising that within 24 hours, Jaram had issued a statement clarifying what he meant 
um, which was in fact that India should never, I repeat, never agree to set a national emissions reduction target uh, for carbon. Uh, now, he obviously needed to do this to, to save his job. It was absolutely necessary. Or in Indian in English, it was doing the needful. Um, now, I mentioned this otherwise minor political storm um, because I've been asked by the organizers to talk about India and the U.S. in the age of globalization. And whilst that's a very worthy and interesting an important set of topics you've thrown at me. I think globalization can mean what you want it to mean. And India and the US are such vast, complex, and uh, infuriatingly obtuse democracies um, that I felt it was important to narrow the topic down a little bit. Um, and so I've chosen this particular topic, um, India and the US in the age of global warming, um, because I think we need to challenge some of our assumptions about what the rise of India means um, for the rest of the world and for the US in particular. Um, over the last few years since I uh, moved back to Washington DC from India, I've been asked many times by American audiences in Washington and around the country that to talk about India and to talk about what India's rise means um, in an increasingly multipolar world, what it means for America's position in that world. And underlying, the assumption underlying these invitations is that a rising India, from a US perspective, is uh, a rising ally, essentially, for the United States. It's, and indeed, India and the US have taken, in recent years, uh, to describing themselves as natural allies. Um, but the word ally can mean different things in the same language, depending on which place you're in. Um, I'll never forget, as, as a Financial Times correspondent in, in the United States, you are divided by a common language the whole time, and we have to be extremely careful um, to watch out for anglicisms that can be misinterpreted um, by Americans. The most famous example um, from an FT point of view is a headline we had in America in our U.S. edition, uh, Blair Beats Off Opposition, um, which to a British audience means he took on the Tories and he won. But to an American audience meant he was getting on unusually well with, with the Conservatives. So you have to be, you have to be careful. Um, you have to be careful with words. And the word ally to American ears conjures up images of Britain, I think, first and foremost, um, as an archetypal kind of ally, a henchman, if you like, a global henchman that will follow you down whatever foxhole you're going down, um, but will largely echo, sometimes challenge or reinforce um, or modify, but increasingly just echo your uh, stance vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world. Um, in India, the word ally means something quite different. And of course, the US and India are not allies in any formal sense. There is no treaty um, of friendship. There are no mutual defense pacts. Um, but this word natural ally is used very frequently. Um, and I think in India it's taken to mean something very different. It's taken to mean that where you have interests in common, which India and the US obviously do, you cooperate and work together and deepen. And uh, as we shall see, 
There are many, many areas where that is true of the U.S.-India relationship. But where your interests diverge, where they do on equally significant uh, field, in equally significant fields, but much less appreciated, then you unsentimentally part ways. That's, that's the view in India of what being an ally of the United States means. And it, it, it means a very, very different kind of relationship to the one that you would see between the U.K., uh, and India. What I would like to do tonight is focus on those areas where the US and India part ways. Um, in particular, I would like to focus on this looming tug of war over climate change, um, over uh, not just the forthcoming talks in Copenhagen, which are obviously critical, but uh, the opening gambit rather than the end of the matter, um, but also over the much broader paraphernalia of issues that comes with the negotiation over the distribution of the most important element um, in the story of industrialization and the story, of course, also of globalization, namely carbon. And this negotiation is, I think, not a side issue, as we sometimes tend to think of it, but an absolutely core identity issue, um, both for developed countries like the U.S., which until very recently proclaimed our lifestyle is not up for negotiation, but in particular for developing countries, uh, of which India is the leader of the pack um, in terms of how they develop and the degree to which they're permitted to develop. Um, and I think the reaction to Jairam's statement, his, his private letter the other day, tells you a great deal. Um, so I have entitled my talk, US and India in the Age of Global Warming. Let me start, though, by reminding you of the very strong interests that the US and India have in common. Um, when I was first based in Washington, D.C. in 1999-2000, as Crayon said, writing speeches for Larry Summers. For those of you who know what Larry then went on to do at Harvard, to show you I was not writing speeches for him at Harvard. <laughs> um, when I, I was first based in Washington, essentially, if you mentioned the word India, it was followed by Pakistan, almost automatically. India was followed by Pakistan. It was a Pavlovian hyphenation. Um, and it spoke of a certain view of India amongst America's policy-making elites, um, that India was a, was a headache, was, a, was a, a fire to be fought, a problem to occasionally be addressed, um, uh, inhabiting, as Bill Clinton famously said, the most dangerous nuclear flashpoint in the world, the point along the line of control that divides Pakistan from uh, Pakistan-occupied Kashmir from, from Indian Kashmir. Um, since returning to Washington in 2006, I noticed a very, very radical change in hyphenation. In hyphenation. Um, now, whenever you mention the word China, it's followed by the word India. Um, and that tells you a, an enormous amount about how much India has changed in the, in the mindset of America's policymaking elites. No longer is it a, a problem. It's a rising power. And in the world, uh, it's a rising global power. And in the words of the National Intelligence Council, which is the distilled wisdom, if that's the right word, of America's 16, 16 intelligence agencies, um, India is the global swing state of the 21st century. Uh, the swing state between an America that seeks to sustain and prolong its hegemony, its global he hegemony, um, and a China that will increasingly come to challenge that hegemony. Uh, and India is seen as swinging the American 
way. And I think there are compelling arguments to imagine the future in that light. Let me remind you what the Bush administration did on India's behalf. Um, at the very fag end of the Bush administration, after the TARP bill, the bank bailout bill had been passed last year, when it could get nothing done, when the Bush administration was toxic, it managed by thumping majority to push through the Indian Civil Nuclear Act, the 123 Act, which by explicitly backing India's civil nuclear program, implicitly underwrote India's nuclear weapons program. Um, now that program was, uh, most of you will recall, brought to light um, and declared to the world 11 years ago in May 1998 when India tested five nuclear weapons under the Thar Desert, in fact under your constituency I think, in, uh, in Rajasthan. Um, and some of you also might recall that George Fernandez, the then defense minister, pronounced immediately that these tests on India's nuclear deterrent were aimed at China, not Pakistan, which is seen as a nuclear subsidiary, I think rightly, as a nuclear subsidiary of China, um, but aimed at China. He was forced subsequently to dilute and water down his remarks, but the cat was out of the bag. It's fairly obvious what the nuclear deterrent, the Indian nuclear deterrent, is for. Um, and it's only in that context that you can understand why the Bush administration bent over backwards to accommodate India's desire to be recognized as the sixth unofficial member of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Club, the Nuclear Armed States. Um, why the Bush administration would have chosen to drive a coach and horses uh, through the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, the cornerstone of America's then and now of America's strategy for dealing with the spread of weapons of mass destruction. As Iran will tell you, it remains the cornerstone, was shredded on India's behalf. And I think the only way of explaining why the Bush administration would have gone to those lengths and why the Obama administration perhaps reluctantly um, is inheriting and upholding that act is because of fear of a rising China and uh, a view of India as the only possible, given its size, the only possible future counterbalance to a rising China. No other country, Japan or any that you can think of, could, could, could fit that role. Um, and it's true, um, although never mentioned in informal dispatches, that both India and the United States are deeply wary, uh, have a deep sense of foreboding about China's rise in the decades ahead. And much of that mutual anxiety that Washington and New Delhi share about China is about China's growing military reach, not just the range of its uh, uh, nuclear-capable missiles, but in particular the range, the projection of Chinese naval force beyond China's immediate coastal line, the traditional naval reach of China, right into the Indian Ocean, right into India's backyard, and not just into India's backyard, but up around its neck, as the phrase goes, the string of pearls, the so-called string of pearls, of Chinese naval ports that are being built in all of India's neighboring countries, in Gwadar, in Pakistan, a Chinese naval port is nearing completion that can host permanent Chinese naval presence. It's a Pakistani port built by the Chinese for the Chinese. Uh, Chittagong in Bangladesh can host Chinese naval visits and the Chinese have been upgrading that port. Two China, Chinese naval receptive ports in Myanmar, deepening ties with uh, the Sri Lankan military 
um, very close ties with the now Republican uh, Maoist-led um, government in Nepal, um, all of which is seen with some reason from India as a strategy of encirclement, of Chinese encirclement. Now, um, this string of pearls, as it is known, two decades ago, um, would have prompted, I think, a very different reaction from India. Um, but as the hyphenation change might tell you, um, India has also changed its diplomatic posture um, towards the world. Whereas once India saw its, uh, filtered its, its diplomatic stance towards the world through the moral non-alignment, its leadership of the non-aligned movement during the Cold War, um, now India has a, a very much more hard-headed and pragmatic approach to diplomacy. That stance, the moral non-aligned stance, was really um, a, a carryover from the great moral kudos India had rightly won in its freedom struggle against the British. Um, but now India sees the world through a much more pragmatic, national interest-based um, and regional security-based lens. Um, in the words of um, one, one Indian strategic thinker, Raja Mohan, this change in India's diplomatic stance could be described as changing uh, from using the power of argument, which India did at very verbose length, often on the floor of the General, UN General Assembly, substituting the power of argument for the argument of power. Whereas once India wanted to change the world, now India wants to be on the board of directors. Um, and that has informed how India has responded to this Chinese strategy of uh, this string of pearls, this so-called encirclement. Um, the regular and increasingly large military exercises that the US and India undertake um, in the Bay of Bengal and elsewhere around the Indian Ocean, the joint anti-piracy control patrols that India and US naval vessels conduct from the, the coast of Somalia right through the Straits of Hormuz, right up to the Straits of Malacca, a vast area. Um, these are little noticed in the United States, very little noticed, but uh, are heavily noticed in India, and in particular in, in China. Um, uh, the Chinese um, were extremely miffed two years ago when the largest such operation involving aircraft carriers, fighter jets, combat helicopters in the Bay of Bengal, just near Calcutta, um, China wasn't invited to participate in these naval, these war games. Um, Australia was invited, Japan was invited, Singapore was invited. Um, and India, in kind, in turn, is responding by having its own sort of mini diplomatic encirclement of China. Indian relations with Vietnam have never been so good. Indian relations with Japan have never been so good. Indian relations with South Korea have never been so good. India is doing exactly the same on a much less dramatic and less militarized scale, um, but nevertheless on a very pragmatic and pointed way of, of befriending China's neuralgic neighbors, who are as neuralgic towards China as India's smaller neighbors are towards India. Um, none of which is to suggest that conflict between China and India is inevitable, but it isn't inconceivable. So the US and India share many, many interests, central one of which is a mutual wariness over the rise of China. But to acknowledge this fact, and it is a central fact, 
um, of their relations. And I think it's going to be an increasingly central fact of the 21st century, how we respond to the rise of China. Um, But to acknowledge that India and the US have this in common um, shouldn't cause us to overlook where they collide and sometimes directly clash. You'll be familiar with some of the examples, the Doha round of global trade talks, which have been in suspension for 18 months now and are likely to be in suspension for another 18 months, are in suspension principally, if you boil it down, because of deep disputes between India and the United States. There are others involved, but the core players are these two. Um, I can imagine, and uh, we can to some extent see, um, a huge clash of interests if India goes ahead at some point in the future and builds a pipeline from Iran to India. Iran's liquefied natural gas supplies um, would provide a third of India's energy needs in 2030, in 2030, when India's energy consumption will have doubled from where it is now. That, obviously, given America's stance towards Iran um, and its hopes of enforcing this, ironically, nuclear non-proliferation treaty, would not, um, would not stoke comity between the US and India. Um, and more immediately, um, there's a great Indian wariness over the Obama administration's um, increasingly close ties um, with the Pakistan civilian government and with the Pakistan military as it builds up and prepares um, for this 20 to 30 to 40,000 US troop surge that Obama will um, expect to announce in the next five or six days. Um, India has seen before um, uh, in its, its own terms its uh, US short-term involvement with the Pakistan military that it believes um, uh, have, have led to dire, broader uh, and longer-term consequences that have damaged India. And in fact, those of you who have been following the Obama administration closely will, might recollect that in January, shortly before Obama was inaugurated, he announced that Richard Holbrook would be his special envoy for the region, the region meaning Afghanistan, Pakistan, India. That was his original designation as Obama's special envoy. This caused deep disquiet in Delhi because that was code, in their view, for Kashmir. That meant that Holbrook was going to be meddling in Kashmir, which India sees as a purely internal matter um, that should not be subjected to third-party mediation. At around that time, at exactly that time, in fact, David Miliband, the UK Foreign Secretary, took a trip to India, and he made the unfortunate but quite easy mistake to make of mentioning Kashmir in a speech in London before he left. Before he touched down in Delhi, he'd been shredded as, almost as much as Jaram Ramesh uh, was recently over his leaked letter. So his trip turned into a bit of a diplomatic fiasco. And sure enough, two days later, Richard Holbrook dropped India from his designation. And Richard Holbrook is the special envoy, as you know, for AFPAC, Afghanistan and Pakistan. In the words of um, one Indian commentator, India was killing the chicken to scare the monkey. Uh, the chicken, of course, being Britain and the monkey being the United States. Um, so these are just a few reasons why it would be quite wrong to see India as an emerging massive global lieutenant, lieutenant, sorry, I've lived in America for too long, uh, lieutenant for the United States. It's the wrong way of viewing India's rise. Which brings me on to the principal element um, of this address, um, which is climate change, and in particular, America and India's positions on climate change. Um, 
as I've said before, this isn't a marginal issue. And indeed, the consequences, the impact, the potential effects of climate change are now routinely integrated into the Pentagon's risk assessments and the National Intelligence Council's risk assessments of the world world over the decades ahead. So let's just start by reminding ourselves of the basic facts. India has 17% of the world's population, almost a fifth. It'll soon be a fifth of the world's population. Um, But it inhabits only 2.5% of the world's surface area. Uh, In spite of its large population, India uh, accounts for only 4% of global carbon emissions, um, with a per capita emissions of only slightly less than 2 tonnes a year. America's is 20 tonnes. India's is about 1.5. So India has far less than 10% of America's uh, uh, carbon emissions output per capita. Um, China, fairly similar, although it accounts for 20% of global emissions. Um, It's about five tonnes ahead for China. Now, India and China are at much lower levels of development, but in spite of this, the West... Um, is putting great pressure ahead of Copenhagen, which is now only five weeks away, um, on both countries as the spokes countries for the developing world to agree to some kind of national emissions reduction target. And both countries are vehemently resisting uh, agreeing to this. And I think there's a reason why. Uh, America, if it sets national emissions targets, and that's still by no means a certainty, I would, in fact, be very, very surprised if the Senate passes the cap-and-trade bill, um, the very modest cap-and-trade bill that passed the House of Representatives in June. But even if America did agree um, to set a national binding legal target, which is what President Obama would like Congress to do, um, that would involve what? It would involve downgrading from your SUV and getting a normal gas-guzzling car or perhaps gradually phasing out your coal-fired plants and replacing them with more expensive nuclear plants. In India's case, let's just think through what this would involve. 40% of Indians do not have electricity. If you don't have electricity, what do you downgrade to? It's an insupportable uh, target to sign up to if you are a government in a democracy. It would finish you. And I think you get a small taste of that with the Jairam Ramesh anecdote. Now, as such, the Obama administration has a a different perspective um, to to the Congress. Congress is the one that will decide, though. Um, The US and other Western countries, the UK included, have agreed in diplomaties to common but differentiated responsibilities, which is jargon for saying, we will set emissions targets, and we hope you will voluntarily uh, do something. Um, uh, whatever that is, it's up to you. Um, but we would encourage you to, and maybe we will, uh, it's not going to be much, but maybe we will come up with money to help subsidize your move from, from fossil fuels to non-fossil fuels. Maybe we will share some technology, none of which is very advanced. But behind this diplomatic language, and this is the best, given the realities on the ground in Washington, this is the best Obama can do. He's doing as much as he can to accommodate China and India's view. Um, Behind that, you have a large block of people on Capitol Hill. I'd suspect it's a majority um, who will not sign up to any global deal on global warming, to any treaty 
whether it comes from Copenhagen or elsewhere, um, unless India and China agree to very, very steep cuts in their national emissions. In other words, unless India and China agree to cut their own economic throats, because that's what it means. Um, So I have a great deal of sympathy um, as a starting point. Um, I have no no difficulty um, whatsoever in agreeing with the, the, the common Indian point of view and the official Indian position, which is also reflected in India's stance in Copenhagen, that India should not sacrifice its own development in order to pay for two centuries of Western pollution. I think that's an absolutely reasonable and essential starting point. Um, And that furthermore, if the West wants countries like India to tackle um, its current carbon-intensive phase of development, then the West is going to have to take a far, far more bold leadership role in in making sharp, and politically unpopular emissions reductions here in the West first before the developing world will move. As I indicated at the beginning of the talk, there is no chance in Copenhagen that India will agree to an emissions or China. Um, and I don't think there's any chance for the next 10 years, at least. Um, if you view the, the world from within India's context, um, it's a completely justifiable stance. Having watched the West grow rich and fat on a high-carbon diet, um, it's not reasonable for the West to then turn around and say to India, India, you you need to lose weight. Um, And that essentially is the position of the majority of people in Congress. Um, And that that bears repeating. Congress is the body um, in the American system that will decide America's approach to global warming. And yet, uh, the future has a horrible way of making irrelevant the narratives of the past and of cutting through the language of justice and equity. And it would be wrong, I think, quite wrong, to infer that because India and China possess the moral high ground on global warming, that the burden of action should then fall slowly, solely on the West. Were life, were, were life a, a morality play, um, uh, that would be the correct conclusion to draw. But the world pays no heed to morals. And in the case of global warming, um, we're faced with a horrible situation where India, China, and other parts of what we used to call the South will be the earliest and by far the severest victims of its consequences. Um, And what is more, some of those consequences are already apparent. They're already real time. So while we get accustomed to drinking Merlot from Scotland or, or pineapples from Canada, um, the, the life for the farmer in the Gangetic Basin or the Irrawaddy Delta or the Yangtze Valley will become, as it already is, increasingly erratic, increasingly difficult. The groundwater increasingly salinated. Um, the floods and the droughts increasingly pronounced. And the numbers of global warming refugees internally increasingly large. Um, on the international stage, India's position... Um, of challenging the inequity with which we begin these talks um, is absolutely correct um, and it's also a good negotiating position a good lever to bring more concessions from the OECD countries um, but as a domestic policy uh, for dealing with the real time consequences of global warming 
um, which, as I say, if you watch the retreat of the Himalayan glaciers, and they have been retreating, and the impact of that on, 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 on Asia's great river systems, which feeds 60% of the world, um, then in that context, the domestic context, the, the argument of global inequity is irrelevant. Uh, as Nicholas Stern, now um, August Chair of Economics, I forget the precise title of his chair, here at the London School of Economics said, uh, an author of the Stern Report on Climate Change, India tends to see global warming as an external challenge when it is in fact first and foremost an internal one. The challenge India faces in reorienting its economy is also an intellectual challenge. Um, back in the 1970s, Indira Gandhi said, development before environment. Um, now, at the time, that was a perfectly unexceptional thing to say. It was, it was conventional wisdom. Um, and it, it, it would have been normal also in most parts of the West. But at another level, it expressed a profoundly Western, Greco-Roman, to be pompous, um, view of man's relationship to nature, which 30 years later... Um, looks like a profoundly counterproductive way of thinking, particularly in India's very densely populated, resource-constrained environment. Um, Any of you who have visited India in recent years, and obviously some of you are from India, um, will observe one thing the moment you arrive at Delhi or Mumbai, Chennai, wherever it might be, airport, less so Chennai, Um, and that is as you drive into town, Um, at an average speed of five, seven miles an hour. Um, All around you, you will see um, the spaghetti sort of entanglement of flyovers and um, underpasses and new side roads under construction or completing construction or being renovated. Um, The next time you do that, you should stop and think that India has a car ownership level of two cars for every hundred Indians. That's four times the level it was a decade ago. There's been an absolute boom. It's quadrupled the number of cars it possesses. America has 85 cars per 100 people. Now, for India to times 10 the number of cars it has to 20 cars per 100 Indians, still a quarter of America's level, um, is, I think, to to, to see a vision of purgatory unfold before you. Um, Can India develop along the same lines as the West? Well, you know, the first time there was a global warming summit summit was in Rio. People forget that. They think Kyoto was where it started. It began in Rio in 1992, and George Bush Sr. was the American president then. And he said, famous, infamously, at the beginning of the summit, the American lifestyle is not up for negotiation. Now, I'm not entirely sure America has changed its position since then. Um, In fact, I'm pretty skeptical that it has. Um... But I think one thing is absolutely clear, that it's definitely no longer up for replication. Um, if China and India are to fulfill what is expected of them, um, uh, their rise to a, a waiting in the global power system and the global economy, befitting of their population, befitting of their civilization and sophistication, then it cannot be by aspiring to an American lifestyle. It's unachievable, regardless of whether it's desirable or not. Um, let's also just very briefly look at India's water situation Uh, with almost a fifth of the world's population India has 3.5% 
of the world's fresh water resources. Uh, and that number is going in the wrong direction. Uh, because of populist tendencies in India's democracy, um, roughly a quarter of Indian electricity is given away for free to farmers. Um, and state governments that propose charging for farmers generally lose. I mean, parties at the state level, where most of the action is in India, generally lose if they propose pay, uh, uh, levying a price for electricity. Um, now, when, you, when something's free, you overuse it. It's an inevitable law of economics. Um, and water gets overused. And so the groundwater table in most parts of India is plummeting. It's getting more and more difficult to suck water up from the ground. Um, and only the rich farmers who can afford electricity connections and can afford the pumps, uh, the electric pumps that you power through electricity to get the water out, only the poor farmers are able to reach down for this water. Um, or take in his agricultural policies, um, which are highly water-intensive, and massive state subsidies are lavished on three crops in particular, rice, wheat, and sugarcane, water-greedy crops. Um, I think you can go on fuel subsidies, again, um, through underpricing fuel. Uh, Indians overuse it. Um, the point is that even if global warming didn't exist, even if this was one giant hoax, um, even if um, uh, none of this turned out to be true, India would need to do the kinds of things it ought to do um, uh, as if global warming did exist. It makes no difference. It has a water crisis. It has a power crisis. It has an infrastructure crisis. It has a congestion crisis. Um, it has a carbon crisis because it has to be imported, which is a foreign exchange crisis, potentially, again, down the line. All of the things India would need to do were global warming real. It needs to do anyway. I can do no better at this nearly concluding point uh, to quote Nandan Nilakani, uh, the former chief executive of Infosys, um, uh, who's now um, got, I think, the most difficult job in the world. He was appointed recently by Manmohan Singh as... Uh, uh, to, to, to create a national identity card for 1.2 billion Indians, and I wish him a lot of luck. Um, uh, and his recent book, which I'd recommend to any of you who are interested in this subject, if we ignore all these warnings, we as in India, and eventually see our growth rates tumble as our economy becomes unsustainable, we will have nobody to blame but ourselves. So what does all this mean for India's emerging role in an increasingly multipolar world? And what specifically uh, does it mean uh, for India's relations with the United States, the existing hegemon and the swing state of the 21st century? Um, first, something that by now should be very obvious, that India is a pivotal global player. It's not an emerging fact, it is a fact. And the climate change situation, I think, crystallizes that very clearly. What India does, along with China in Copenhagen, or later, because I think it will all be later, nothing's going to happen in Copenhagen, um, will be absolutely decisive for how the world tackles or does not tackle climate change. Uh, second, and perhaps even more importantly, um, if India is to fulfill this destiny of becoming a really important global power uh, in areas other than climate change or trade, um, uh, then it's going to need to ensure that it is on a sustainable economic development path. Uh, India should never again be required, as it has been of colonialists and Western romantics, to transcend materialism. 
Um, but it's going to have to transcend carbon. And I think that's a central fact of India's economic future, is how it approaches carbon. Third, and perhaps most importantly, in the context of this lecture, is that we should not measure India's rise as a net gain for the West in a zero-sum game of global power. And I think we tend to do that, particularly in the United States. That seems to be the assumption. Um, now, it's true that the US and India have a very, very vital core strategic interest in common, which is coping with the rise of China. Um, but on another, perhaps, as profound, or maybe even more profound level, um, it is India and China that are aligned against the United States um, in the realm of global climate talks. Uh, two weeks ago, I actually was trying to remember whether it was before or after the controversy, I think it was 10 days ago, Jarem Ramesh, India's environment minister, held a meeting with his Chinese counterpart, which resulted in a very clear muscular joint India-Chinese joint statement that condemned America's stance in the global climate talks and in which the two countries stood shoulder to shoulder in their approach to Copenhagen. Now, in a US-centric world, in a US-centric view of the world, India is still basically with the United States, except on a couple of side issues, climate and trade. But if you're a developing country, climate and trade are life and death issues. Um, and so if you look, as I would advise you to do at India's rise in a non-US-centric way, then you can see a very different kind of influence arise, uh, emerging from India's rise than you might expect that might radically run against American interests as well as shoring up American interests in other areas. So if I'm required, um, as I think people giving lectures are usually required to come up with a concluding line, I've struggled to do this. Um, I'm really throwing these issues out rather than attempting to uh, predict where they're all going to end up. But if I'm required to do so, um, I would say that the rise of India uh, I think epitomizes as well as the behavior and rise or decline of any other country that the rise of India epitomizes the fact that we should no longer look at the world as being divided into permanent camps. It's a very outmoded way of looking at this increasingly multipolar world. Um, we live in a shifting and multipolar environment and how India impacts on it for good or for ill, is very, very consequential. Um, so that rather sort of half-conclusive point, um, perhaps we can have, if anybody has questions, we can, we can move to questions. Well, uh, Edward's uh, kindly agreed to... Um, take some questions. What, what I might suggest is we perhaps group them, um, give you a little time to uh, reflect. No, no, no rehydrated. Rehydrated, okay. So who would like to do some questions? Uh, yes, ma'am. Can we have mics? Yeah. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, my question, uh, as you rightly pointed out, that uh, the model which America shows may not be the right model to follow in terms of, uh, but uh, my question goes is in an increasingly open market liberal economy promoted by, you know, uh, the international trade and monetary organizations pushing forward a consumerist world where, you know, India is seen as a bigger player. How do we alter 
this kind of growth model for how do we talk of alternative approach other than this growth model uh, and also when we talk about a reduction in emission and reduction in uh, carbon we also see that it's mostly the multinational companies who, who commit in their own countries to cut down come and set up uh, their uh, mm, plants and factories in india where obviously along with the cheap labor and cheap capital environmental laws are also equally cheap so how how do we see this uh, it's actually the emission of these uh, these uh, country uh, these uh, big multinationals which are leading to uh, further adding to the climate change how do we how do we cope with this and in a policy uh, a country needs to design like india thank you I, would, I think it's a very good question. I would dispute the premise, though. I think you know, the, the, clear, um, the clear driver of future flows, I mean, we're aware of what existing stocks of carbon up there are caused by, principally by the West. Um, but future flows um, are going to come from places like India and China, and already are, particularly China. Um, it's a remarkable fact, but um, it would take, I think, 10 years, if the cap-and-trade bill was passed in America, for America to reduce its emissions as much as China will increase its emissions in the next year with new coal-fired plants. It's building one every 10 days. So these are not owned by multinationals. These are, these are Chinese state-owned. And most of India's coal, most of India's electricity supplied by coal, most of it's state-owned. And most of it's very dirty, sulfurous coal. Um, so the future problem, you, you capture very well the stock. What we have to face is the flow. Is the future. Um, I think it would have been good if Kyoto and now Copenhagen had been approached in this way, to have a stock sort of flow approach, then you could be equitable about it. But I would caution you against that old England, Indian rallying cry to blaming foreign companies. The, we, the East India Company is dead. There's no longer, this is your problem as well. And it's self-generated as well. How you cope with it, that, that is the seven trillion dollar question it's, it's not something I could even begin to attempt to answer but it's, it's a good question forgive me for, correct, um, for challenging one of your premises Thank you. some more questions, yes sir over there yeah. hello uh, my question is a little bit uh, it's a small, like, small technical thing like, I was a little hurt when you contradicted one of your statements so, like, you said like I'm from a very backward part of India, so like you said, 40% of India do not have electricity, like which is true. And uh, after that, you said uh, lots of farmers get electricity for free, and so they waste it. Like in my place, we don't get electricity. Like the farmers get electricity in the night. It comes at 8 o'clock in the night, and the, it uh, lasts till 5 o'clock in the morning. So they switch on their lights the whole night. Uh, but uh, and uh, we don't waste electricity. Like when I, if you go away from the metropolis, like I used to stay in Chennai, then I went away to my hometown. Then we didn't have electricity for 12 hours each day, and the government used to announce it. And uh, yeah, another thing is, and we don't waste that amount of uh, that amount of fuel because, like, the f I don't know. I find the British, like the developed countries, like more wasteful because an average uh, British household like waste around. Uh, 6,000, 7,000 pounds of their household goods each year. But uh, like for an Indian, an increase in 
the, the amount of increase that we have seen in the fuel prices are like phenomenal because like the time when I was born, like uh, uh, the fuel prices were five rupees and now it's around fi uh, 50 rupees. Meanwhile, like uh, this bottle that I have bought is one pound 15, which is uh, the average uh, wage labor would earn in one day. So, um, we have very different levels of development. You're absolutely right. I, mean, I guess the difference between the two systems is that electricity is not subsidized in Britain. You pay for what you use. Um, and you know, some people can't afford to use as much as other people. Um, the point about providing free electricity to farmers is not just that the state governments don't get the money back. So their power companies are inherently, chronically loss-making. And this means these power companies can't invest in new power generation. They don't have the capital. It's all been given away at election time in free electricity. And the poor are the biggest victims of that. Um, you'll find whole villages, as you know better than I, um, that don't, they'll, where one or two houses will have electricity, and they're not the poor houses. Um, so I, I would say market pricing is pro-poor in this case. Um, but whatever, whatever it is, if you want a rational resource, you must price it. You go to the lady right at the back there. Yes, yes, ma'am. Purple dress. Um, this is a very personal observation about India. I'm from India, and I go to college um, in the United States. I'm spending a year at LSE. And um, this is a very personal observation, and, but I haven't been able to find much in public discourse about this. Um, and so what I believe is that India's problem with global warming is much easier to deal with because all the problems that you talk about, for example, um, things like you know the booming number of cars in India, you can deal with that by improving the public transport system, yeah. for example. Yeah. Or a lot of times with emissions from um, factories, you could possibly just adopt cleaner technology from countries like the United States, which would significantly reduce the amount of emissions that we have right now. Whereas in the U.S., I think the lifestyle is just so extravagant that that is the root cause of the problem. And also, I think it's one thing for the intellectual elite of the country to come up with concepts like, oh, we need to reduce emissions, but another thing altogether for the average American to adopt them and be willing to change that lifestyle. And therefore, I think that Personally, as an Indian, I'm extremely resentful of the U.S. stand because there is nothing in public discourse which talks about how the U.S. would be able to deal with their populace responding to the need to um, sort of com combat global warming. So I, I just want to know what you think about I fully, it. I fully agree with you. I fully agree. Um, and if you look at the Waxman-Markey bill, the bill that was passed in the House of Representatives, it imposes through cap and trade an average cost per year on American electricity consumers, an average increase of $173, which is less than the price of a postage stamp a day. Out, outrage, the uproar against that new cost in a recession has basically caused the Senate to freeze any passage of this bill. This is considered an unacceptably high price. Um, to which the answer is, uh, relative to what? I mean, if you believe the science of global warming, if you believe what your countryman, Rajendra Pachauri, the, the chairman of the UN panel on climate change says global emissions must peak in 2015. And if they don't peak in 2015, we will go beyond the two degrees centigrade temperature rise, um, beyond which is catastrophic. 
It's manageable up to 2 degrees centigrade. It is catastrophic beyond that. There is an air of total unreality in the American debate, which some people say is because there was a recession. But Bush had eight years of boom, and there was no discussion of this. There was Al Gore um, and the inconvenient truth on the sidelines. But there was no discussion. And I think it's quite striking to me how many, and it's part of the American mindset, how many people see the solution to be some magical technological breakthrough rather than any change in the way Americans behave. Um, America needs to re-urbanize, essentially. There's no reconsideration of its mortgage subsidy. The mortgage subsidy gets bigger, the bigger the house, which sponsors the whole massive accretion of exurbia, covering every square inch. Um, I agree with you. Uh, it, it, it's still an unrealistic debate. And you hear, just as a final point, you hear uh, you know, horrible suggestions, but nevertheless probably realistic assessments of what it would take to change the American mindset, that you would need Katrina times five. You'd need a shock to the system. Nobody wants that. But um, right now, it's business as usual. And even people who say they believe the science act as if they don't. There was a, no, got a gentleman right at the front here. He was waiting, yes. I want to touch upon uh, whatever you just now spoke about the developing and the developed world both coming to the Copenhagen summit. I think uh, if the talks have to succeed, probably both sides will have to move a little ahead, a little closer. Whereas whatever I mean you delivered, it was basically from the developing world side, I mean the kind of stand that we need to take, probably or the India or China may have to take. What is it that the USA or the developed world is bringing to the table, number one? And uh, is there any possibility of clean technology or better technology being transferred at a much cheaper cost or at a subsidized price to the developing world? And uh, if the talks don't succeed or if there is a failure, what is the likely scenario in world trade and world scenario that you look forward to? It's funny. The assumption on your question is quite correct and it's widespread. Uh, I'm um, that the technology comes from the West and we transfer it to the developing world. I'm, um, I'm looking forward to, as a journalist who covers Obama to going with him next week to China and Japan and South Korea and Singapore. And there, uh, the Americans are pushing the Chinese for some big joint projects on carbon sequestration and electric cars and all these. And the Chinese aren't very interested. And the reason why the Chinese aren't very interested is not because they're not investing in these things. It's because they're way ahead of America. Um, now, the stimulus bill, the $787 billion Obama passed in February to boost the economy, allocated a lot of money to clean energy. It's very interesting. Most of that, about 85%, has been distributed to the uh, U.S. subsidiaries of foreign companies, including Chinese turbine, wind turbine makers. There are no... America developed the original wind turbine technology. It developed original... Um, uh, solar panel technology, but it is completely, after eight years of Bush, it has completely lost any advantage. The, the market is carved up by Europe, China and India, and Brazilian companies, and there's one or two South Africans, Suzlon being a famous Indian wind turbine. So technology transfer, you know, at the current rate, might have to be from China to America. Um, I think Obama is changing that. This money, you know, this is a big change from Bush, and so I'm being a little bit facetious. Um, but if the talks are not going to fail, one or other side or both are going to have to change their position quite markedly. I don't know how that will happen. 
There were a couple of people here. This uh, lady in the front. Thank you. Um, without wanting to seem like I'm advocating for the reversal of the change of burden, because I think everybody has a role in change wherever you are, what is it that countries like India and China need to do in order to persuade countries like America and the West in order to change their behavior in how they do those things? What role do they have in creating a kind of a better movement for climate change? Um, I don't think in their own eyes they would see themselves as having any role. That's the problem with the politics right now. Um, both sides are waiting for the other to move first. If you remember the last treaty, the first and last treaty we've had is Kyoto. And Kyoto divided the world into developed countries and developing countries. Developing countries didn't have to set emissions targets. So China and India were excluded. Developed countries agreed to modest reductions. Um, and that was put to the U.S. Senate, and I forget the exact maths, there are 100 senators. It was defeated, I think, 97 to 0. That was only 10 years ago. Uh, so the idea that Obama is going to sort of bring back some kind of treaty and the Senate are going to pass it, the Senate's not that much different today than it was 10 years ago. Um, uh, they say, including a core group of 20 Democratic senators, which is much larger than the swing, it's a overdetermined swing um, in the Senate, has said we will not pass any treaty in which India and China do not reduce their absolute level of emissions now, even though in India's case it's 7% of America's per capita emissions. Imagine what that says. America is responsible, as we are in the West, for 80% of the carbon out there. And we're saying you should move first at this level of development I really think it's an outrageous premise, in fact. I think we have to, we have to move first, and in a very major way, if we're going to, we're going to get India and China and others. You know, we haven't mentioned Africa. So I, you, I'm glad you asked the question. It was a provocative question. Um, but I just don't think politics in China or India would remotely permit them taking the lead on this at the level of development that they're living at. There's a gentleman who's been waiting in the centre there. Yep. I come from the southern state of Kerala in India, and my question is uh, something related to the question the lady over there just raised before, as well as the points you made on the crisis, water crisis India is facing. Uh, the, for half of a decade, uh, there was a strike going on in my state against a Coca-Cola plant, which was utilizing the groundwater, as a, like, which was a, exploiting the groundwater resources and the people around the nearby villages were not even able to have fresh water for their daily uses. And as a result, uh, the state of Kerala, then which was under a left government, uh, temporarily banned Coca-Cola products from the state, but still because of their uh, you know, political will as well as lobbying capabilities, they're still in the state. So these kind of actions, this kind of uh, way the multinational companies uh, like utilizing the cheap labor as well as cheap capital in India, and which, which is of course creating a problem to environment as well as for the common people, uh, as well as the water resource which I'm picking here. What are your thoughts on uh, this uh, problem? The, 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 best, the best scenario is to get a lot of investment, but to regulate it properly. I mean, if you have union carbide, and union carbide uh, uh, kills 14,000 people, um, and uh, the Indian government has not been regulating it properly and not holding it to account. Both sides are to blame. 
Um, Union Carbide is a very extreme example to bring up Coca-Cola in a more mainstream one. Um, but there is no doubt about it that um, countries that attract a lot of investment attract higher paying jobs than domestic jobs. Um, and they attract technology transfer, which is an absolute key to development. So I think the answer is to regulate it better. There are, there are a lot of very good multinational and bilateral investments in India um, that have had you know, great job creating and income boosting impact. Think of Chennai. You know, th- think of the French glass making companies. Think of Nokia. Think of Motorola. Um, Coca-Cola, I'm, I'm fully with you. I mean, it's, I, and, I, and I'm aware of the struggle that you mentioned. But the answer is not just to sort of sit there and say it's just multinationals. It's to regulate them. It's to have regulators who are not corrupt. This gentleman right at the back. Sorry. Yeah. I have actually two questions for you. Uh, the first one is, what do you expect from the Obama administration at this point? Uh, and I'm intrigued by this because uh, the closest person to Obama at this point is Larry Summers, who once famously said that uh, the developed countries should export their pollution to the non-developed countries so it would be better for the entire world in general, which is an absolutely nonsensical statement to make. And since you've been close to Larry Summers, unless Larry Summers has changed, which is unexpected, uh, I would like to get your view on that. Uh, The second one is, uh, in this new power dynamics that we have in the multipolar world, where do you see, uh, in the Copenhagen talks, China has a new position now post the economic crisis, where it holds a large amount of American debt. And that's a huge lever for China. So where do you see that playing out vis-a-vis uh, India being you know, the counterbalance between two emerging, two superpowers, so to speak? That's a very, the latter one's a very difficult one to answer. But to quote Larry Summers, China holds all of America's debt, um, and America um, uh, is therefore the largest debtor nation, and China is the largest creditor nation. In the words of Larry Summers, it's financially uh, the equivalent of mutually assured destruction. Both lose um, if this ends badly. Um, if the dollar collapses through the floor, China's investments are worth it, worth, worthless, and America's uh, dollar is also worthless. Neither will benefit. You're going to have to have a very slow uh, unwinding. And one of this, and I think this imbalance between China and the U.S. was the cause of the global crisis. There were more proximate causes like bad regulation, um, sponsorship of Wall Street, etc. But without the very, very easy money that America was getting, and therefore the very low interest rates it was getting, because China is pouring all of its export earnings into treasuries, it's buying so many dollars that interest rates just... That, that, that was the precondition without which a crisis wouldn't have happened. Um, so you, the question you ask is the central one for the health of the world economy. And it's bizarre there's something wrong with the world economy when a developing country is its leading creditor and the developed, most developed country is its leading debtor. It's, it really should be textbooks tell you the other way around. India you know, is less developed than China. It has um, trade surpluses. And I think it's got um, foreign exchange reserves of three, four hundred billion dollars now. And when I moved to India, um, it was, I think, $25 billion, not that long ago. And it's a massive increase. But it's not China's $2 trillion um, surplus. It, so India, you know, is as yet not 
it's in the top three or four or five in most other issues you look around globally, climate change, containing weapons of mass destruction, um, combating terrorism, um, unraveling the whole AFPAC situation. Um, but on, on financial sector reform and global imbalances, India is not really a huge voice yet. All right. Um, have a gentleman here in the front. Um, I, I thought your talk about China and India and the balance there was particularly fascinating, and I never hadn't really thought of it that way at all. Um, the, the pearl of the string of pearls. How much is that related to China? partly to get away from dependence on U.S. securities, but buying up resources, Africa, Australia, but particularly Africa, how much is that a strategic protection of its rooted supply? Um, and also, if, if there is this kind of encirclement going on, finally India's got a nuclear, a nuclear response, but it doesn't seem to be doing very much to counter that projection of power. And also the resource the grab, which China is doing. Um, I, I became quite alarmed recently. Um, I don't know... You would certainly have been following the row between China and India over Manmohan Singh's visit to Arunachal Pradesh, the Himalayan border state um, that China claims all or part of. Um, and China kicked up a huge fuss because the Prime Minister of India was visiting an Indian state and calling it an incendiary and provocative step. Um, and so somebody forwarded me uh, an editorial in the China People's Daily that came out two weeks ago. Um, and then there was another follow-up one in the China Daily, which is the English language version. So this was the translated editorial. This was the kind of language you saw in the build-up to the 1962 war over parts of Arunachal Pradesh. Now, in the next few weeks, India has agreed to permit the Dalai Lama to visit Arunachal Pradesh. So this is, again, we're very, very you know, Western-centric. This has not been covered in the, in, in the Western newspapers. But it's absolutely, really important, a hugely neuralgic issue between two nuclear armed powers who have fought a war over this precise territory before. And China considers that the permission that Mammo and Singh has given to the Dalai Lama to visit this disputed territory to be doubly incendiary. Um, so there's all sorts of Chinese investments going around the region that also double up and, in fact, are in the first instance about Chinese um, uh, merchant ships getting better access to raw materials, which they then export. For example, the port in Gwador in Pakistan is the main port for Baluchistan, and China has a lot of mining operations there um, and gas operations. Um, China is also coming into Pakistan, um, fortifying the, that very high-level Himalayan Karakoram highway from China into Pakistan and building a vast inland port um, and a railway line um, that will eventually link Gwador right in Pakistan's west on the Arabian Sea to the Himalayas. This is extraordinary level of investment. Um, and if you consider at the same time that Pakistan's nuclear technology and capability is basically Chinese, then I can understand India's neuralgia. Um, uh, but uh, just one sort of final rider to that. The Chinese and the Indians continue to misinterpret each other in ways they have been doing so for decades. Um, and one of the things that People's Daily commentary said was that the Indian media have been attacking China, which they have been. The Indian media is very excitable, florid, and quite like the British media. Um, but the assumption in China is this is all officially state-sanctioned, and it's not. It really isn't. It's just the media. 
Um, so you know, these are two giant ships that continue to pass in the night. Um, but there's a lot of friction between them. It really is worth watching. And, and uh, it's, it's potentially quite worrying. I think we have time perhaps two more questions from the audience, and then I'm going to abuse my position and ask Please. the last question. Yeah. But, uh, uh, the lady in the center, and then uh, the gentleman right at the back. So the lady with the purple uh, scarf in the center. From your talk, I gather that um, India and China won't actually be setting any national targets at Copenhagen, which means that the U.S. is unlikely to do anything, too. And I was wondering how likely you think it is that any of these countries in the next five or ten years will set up targets, and meaningful targets at that, because um, there don't seem to be consequences for not meeting the targets even once the national targets are set. And I was wondering um, what you would suggest um, can be done to actually hold these countries accountable to the targets they set up? Impossible. You, I mean, you'd have to have a global court that everybody abided by. I think the way this will work is if you have a cap-and-trade scheme, say in America, and under that cap-and-trade scheme, you're allowed to reduce some of your emissions by uh, buying offsets elsewhere. Um, in other words, your coal-fired plant in Texas, you can pay... Um, an Indian village not to cut down its trees, whatever it might be, very difficult to enforce. But it will be sustained because it's lucrative. It is a transfer of money from, um, from the West to the East. Um, getting the, um, the old phrase Ronald Reagan used about nuclear arms reduction talks um, is trust but verify. Is you need systems of verification on the ground in India that are not just Indian, for, for example, you're going to need a whole new emerging global sort of infrastructure to make this work. Um, which is why I think cap and trades are a really, really bad idea and we should just be imposing carbon taxes. Much simpler. I think there's a gentleman with a black and white scarf right at the back. Uh, it's interesting you spoke about the People's Daily article. Uh, there was actually one article two months back where a, a Chinese strategic analyst wrote a piece on uh, advocating dismemberment of India uh, into various parts. And considering the fact that a lot of the articles that stem out of China have official sanction, are we to infer something from that? And on the second hand, what role can the United States play considering the fact that it's got interests in both China and India? And how, how can India uh, express its concerns and how can the U.S. Uh, ally India's concerns in return on this particular issue? How can the U.S. ally India's concerns? Um, it's difficult for the U.S. to do much. It's not... It's not as powerful as it once was, and it's not as powerful as it thinks it is, um, and particularly when it comes to relations between China and India. The U.S. might be able to just, or maybe not, sway events in Afghanistan and Pakistan, but China and India, it's just not that powerful anymore. Well, as I said, I, I wanted to ask a um, final question, which um, actually picks up on a point you've, you've referred to many times, which is essentially the the strong moral argument behind per capita emissions is essentially a, a sort of framework for climate change. 
Um, and it's certainly true that I think many people, even if in the sort of the heat of negotiation, they will say, well, we can't do that now, will ultimately say, yes, this is where we, we're going to have to end up. And yet, um, if you look at population projections, uh, I think India is currently 1.1 billion people, and I think the stabilization will probably come around 1.5 billion in 2050, something of that order. Uh, and there's therefore a question that I think some have asked, which have said, looking forward, to what extent does India have responsibility for that further increase in population? Is that something that should be treated in the same way in a per capita sense, or is there some sense in which that is it's a controversial question, but to some extent that's partly a responsibility for India? And uh, I mean, I don't know the answer, but I'd be very interested in your view on that. I think the population question is a red herring. Uh, and I'll never forget Manika Gandhi, who was Envi India's environment minister in Rio in 1992, being asked by an American uh, TV journalist um, why India should, uh, whether India should reduce its population because that's going to increase climate change. And she said then, figures were even more stark, she said we have 3% the level per capita of America's um, carbon output. You should reduce your population. And I have to say I agree. I agree entirely. Um, this, is not, this is not a Malthusian problem. Okay. Well, um, I'd like to, uh, to thank Edward for a fantastic um, speech and also uh, for answering all our questions. So thank you very much. <laughs>